Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. I'm thinking of ending things. <laughs> Good time of day, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Horror Vanguard. My name is Ash, and I'm joined, as always, by the one, the only, the Litcrit guy. How's it going, John? Good. Very glad to be here talking about talking about what I like to f- think of as the feel-good film of 2020. You know, we're, between this and the Saw franchise, we're just we're just on a roll for like warm and uplifting family films. Yeah, it's it's a film to give you the warm fuzzies. You know, make you feel really good about the human existential burden uh we're in for a good time we're in for a good time yeah and you know just like clockwork orange this this is a movie about families so we're retaining that theme here um yeah this this is a show that is dedicated to exploring family films films (laughs) about family which is technically true so we are we retain the correctness. Welcome to Family Cinema Vanguard, our new show. We are talking about today uh, Charlie Kaufman's 2020 Netflix uh, exclusive film. I'm thinking of ending things. Uh, the adaptation of the book uh, by the same name. Uh, Kaufman, legendarily a very kind of straightforward, uh, even kind of thematically sort of obvious filmmaker. I've always thought. Um, so, I mean, not that this takes much explaining, Ash, but maybe you can kind of lay out for people what I'm thinking of ending things is about. So all night long, the storm roared on. The morning broke without a sun. In tiny spheral traced with lines of nature's geometric signs, in starry flake and pellicle, all day the hoary meteor fell, and when the second morning shone, we looked upon a world unknown, on nothing we could call our own. The image, its plastic composition and the way it is set in time, because it is founded on a much higher degree of realism, has at its disposal more means of manipulating reality and modifying it from within. The filmmaker is no longer the competitor of the painter and the playwright. He is, at last, the equal of the novelist. The role of cinema here is not that of a servant, nor is it to betray the painting. Rather, it is to provide with a new form of existence. The film of a painting is an aesthetic symbiosis of screen and painting, as is the lichen of the algae and mushroom. To be annoyed by this is as ridiculous as to condemn the opera on behalf of theater and music. The slow cancellation of the future has been accompanied by a deflation of expectations. There can be few who believe that in the coming year, a record as great as, say, The Stooges' Fun House or Sly Stone's There's a Riot Going On will be released. Still less do we expect the kind of ruptures brought about by the Beatles or Disco. The feeling of belatedness, of living after the gold rush, is as omnipresent as it is disavowed. Compare the fallow terrain of the current moment with the fecundity of previous periods and you will be quickly accused of nostalgia. But the reliance of current artists on styles that were established long ago suggests that the current moment is in the grip of a formal nostalgia. 
And, if all else perished, and he remained, I should still continue to be. And if all else remained, and he were annihilated, the universe would turn into a mighty stranger. Join us as we discuss Charlie Kaufman's I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Well, that kind of lays it all out for you. I mean, episode, <laughs> thank you for joining us right there. What else do we need? Where would you like to start? Um, you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start giving a credit to uh, appropriate bodies here. So the Precy took uh, bits from Snowbound, A Winter Idol by John Greenleaf Whittier, Andre Bazin's What is Cinema, Mark Fisher's Ghost of My Life, and of course, Wuthering Heights. And that, I think, it, it kind of throws us in, into the hearts of I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Um, and, and that heart is Charlie Kaufman. <laughs> so would you, mind, would you mind giving everyone a, a kind of the Charlie Kaufman primer? Yeah, so Charlie Kaufman is uh, an American screenwriter, novelist, and film director. Uh, known for, for kind of self-consciously weird films, but actually films which are mostly about the explorations of the subject. Uh, so the big famous one is probably something like Being John Malkovich. Uh, he also wrote Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Uh, then his first directorial film was a film called Synagogue New York, uh, which came out in 2008. Um, he directed an incredible stop-motion animated film called Anomalisa um, a few years ago, and then directed I'm Thinking of Ending Things. How would you kind of describe his style? I think, so Charlie Kaufman is definitely one of those directors that has like an incredibly idiosyncratic style. You, you know, much like David Lynch, Rob Zombie, uh, Ed Wood, you can, you can spot a Charlie Kaufman movie from a mile away. And what would you say some of those those kind of markers are? Um, I, I would say, like with his with his films, there's lots of interest in nonlinear storytelling, bringing in kind of outside cultural objects directly into the movie. Um, a lot of preoccupation with memory, romance, and identity, and especially how those three things intertwine with each other. Um, mm -hmm. How about you? What are, what are some of the Kaufman esque markers? Uh, a lot of kind of metaphysics like very interested in issues of personal identity, personal continuation, mort mortality, time. I think maybe maybe the biggest one is like who are people? Like this question of identity, personal identity. Yeah, that's I mean like that is definitely maybe the central theme of, of I'm thinking of ending things. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what do you think? What do you think about the kind of the nuts and bolts of I'm thinking of anything? So the the performance, the direction, the production, the, the formalism, formalism zone. zone. Uh, I re I I really like this movie. I like it a lot. Um, I I think the the acting is is generally uh, really solid. I think uh, Jesse Buckley and Tony Collette in particular are just just incredible. I think I think Kaufman has a really interesting way of constructing scenes and sequences, and like messing with the like messing with the context and and presentation of time within cinema. Uh, what about you? I mean, I just everybody was just so good, and I'm thinking of ending things. Jake Plemons, or J sorry, Jesse Plemons, who plays Jake. And then um, uh, Guy Boyd, who plays uh, the janitor, a.k.a. Future Jake, 
Um, it just did. I really was really blown away by Guy Boyd's uh, acting in this one. You know, like having having such a understated presence, but mm-hmm. being able to do so much with with so so little in a way, it was just kind of breathtaking to watch. I was thinking quite a lot about Andre Tarkovsky watching this because there's this great talk that Tarkovsky gives to a group of film students where he says that like the big innovation of cinema is its ability to manipulate time. Photography is, is an older technology than, than cinema. Even, even a lot of its aesthetics are taken from art uh, or even advertising. Uh, the composition of images, that's not new. But the fact that you can cut, you can stop, and you can literally restart time is something that this film explores really, really well. Absolutely. And, and I guess uh, maybe relatedly, I was thinking about um, Peter uh, Cherkasky, um, the the kind of like avant-garde experimental director, probably most famous for outer space, I, I think, maybe DreamWork also. But um, uh, so the film Outer Space is just kind of like this dissected and, and disembodied and destroyed film reel that is then re- reconstituted and reassembled to, to give new meaning to these texts and, and a new way of perceiving them. And I, I really, I was th- reflecting on that a lot while watching um, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Yeah. Well, I guess maybe this, this brings up um, a kind of pertinent question, which is that a an accusation kind of thrown around and usually sort of slaps onto films like this is that these films are pretentious. So maybe we can kind of just, uh, what does it mean to call something pretentious? And do you think it's fair to call, I'm thinking of ending things, a pretentious movie? I think this is a very interesting question, right? You know, to, to be pretentious is to kind of like uh, almost fake a, a level of cultural currency, I guess. You know, like like to be pretentious is just to like, put a bunch of cultural signifiers on display and attempt to level oneself up as it were. And so I think, yeah, I, it's, it's unearned, unearned profundity. Mm-hmm. And, and I, yeah. I think this, this kind of leads us to a really complicated conversation on whether or not this movie is pretentious and what it means to label something as a pretentious piece of cinema and I don't know if there are fast and easy answers to exploring that because this movie is incredibly assertive with how it holds the space of being a film. I think there's about 40 minutes total, give or take, of time just spent in a car with our characters of a two and a half hour film. Um, most of that time is just kind of non-linear dialogue, wandering conversations, lengthy quotes of other material. So what do you what do you kind of make of the assemblage of sights and sounds that that is this film in relation to this concept pretentiousness? I don't know. I think pretentiousness is is pretentiousness is a question of interpretation, right? So you can it's like it, it depending on who you are and how you sort of receive a film you can you can extract meaning from it you know and it's like if you feel like a film's form and content don't kind of mesh 
there is a kind of dissonance between a sort of sophistication or, or abstraction of form and an absence of kind of genuine content that undergirds that, then you might say that the film is pretentious. But I think, uh, I think sometimes if it's, it's a kind of way of dismissing something that we don't immediately get is to call it pretentious because then we don't have to try getting it. Absolutely. I, I think that's a great way to kind of split the hair here. Um, another thing that kind of comes to mind for me is I've always associated pretentiousness with a certain cruelty. Um, there, there's something disingenuous and, and not earnest about pretentiousness, right? There, there, there's this implicit act of manipulation or a lie that comes with being or doing something pretentious. And I, I would contrast, I'm thinking of ending things which is very idiosyncratic and as, as an active film, perhaps even a little arrogant, but I contrast it with cabin in the woods, which is incredibly pretentious and condescending um, and mean. <laughs> and, and that for me is another thing that I would, I, I would split this. Like this is, this, this is Kaufman and crew exploring some like deep, personal and slow moving ideas through a bunch of cultural pieces, right? A bunch of poetry, some, some science, Pauline Kael. And I think that there's a fine line here, but this doesn't cross it. Uh, yeah. I think a good point of comparison is also Darren Aronofsky's mother. <laughs> right. Cause to me, that's a pretentious movie. It aims, it, aims for a profundity uh, that its content does not merit. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I totally think it is also quite cruel. Um, Absolutely. But th this, this, this film, I think, is... It's kind, of, it's kind of strange to maybe think of it as a horror film, but I think it is a horror film, and I think it is... I think it's, it's, it's not cruel, but it's very bleak. Um, mm -hmm. and it's it and like like all good horror films it's very sad um and I, actually kind of depressing um but i don't think this is a pretentious movie and i think i think because it lacks the cruelty and i think unlike unlike um something like aronofsky's mother it is actually trying to uh say something f sort of philosophically interesting in, a, in its content, not just in how it presents that content. And, and, and I would say, like, Mother, Aronofsky's mother is yelling at you. Uh, it, is, it is aggressively trying to tell you something, whatever that something is, whereas I'm thinking of ending things as kind of, you're walking with this movie through this space and through these ideas, right? Like this, as, as kind of, heady and unique as this film is it, it treats you like a peer while you watch it hmm. um unlike yeah. cabin in the woods or mother or these films that like kind of hang hang their laurels on display right like like walking around like some trumped up sergeant with like thousands of medals on their vest or something this movie is much more chill about it yeah absolutely absolutely and I, and I definitely think that this is a horror movie uh, for, for the record. Um, it's just, I, I think the thing that's going on here in terms of horror is this is this is horror happening at a glacial pace. 
you know, we're getting, this is a two and a half hour lifetime or two and a half hour movie exploring one man's lifetime through his kind of failing memories at the climax of his life. And it, or at least that's one way of reading these sequence of events. And we're not used to, I think, culturally horror that moves slowly and, and deliberately and calmly. Like slow, deliberate and calm are not three words that get used in horror. Horror is typically frantic and jagged and hostile. And I found this movie to be worthy of so much reflection because of the fact that it forced me to slow down. And that was one of the most challenging things that happened through the course of watching the film. Well, I think I think this is why prete- pretentious, quote unquote, is a, is a is a means of dismissing films which are not immediately kind of transparent in what they mean. Mm-hmm. Like anything that demands kind of uh, reflection, you know, it's a way of of going. Actually, art which makes me self reflect is sort of is it makes me uncomfortable so like i'm just gonna say it's pretentious and then i don't have to worry about it deeply why i 100 agree so so let's let, let's get on to what might be the most difficult question in today's the formalism zone and that's can a film be too long what do you what do you think uh uh no next question <laughs> <laughs> I, I i would say um, yes, but that all depends on what you're doing with my time. If, you know, like a a three-hour Avengers movie, by the end of it, I have grinded my teeth into these smooth and polished rectangles um, because I feel like I'm being experimented on by an ad agency. But you give me, you give me like this film, which certainly took its time, but at, at at no point was I just like tapping my watch and and you know wondering when, wondering when this commercial experience was going to be over. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, and like to go, oh, it it was too long again. Uh, doesn't kind of allow the work to be what it is, but kind of criticizes it for what it isn't. I think you're right. I agree. I agree with you. It it depends upon what you're doing with with that time. And in the case of films like this, uh, I would absolutely say no. The film isn't too long, and to kind of wish that it were is is maybe to to kind of be in some way sort of resistant to what the film is trying to do. Yeah, I think that that's definitely one of the more challenging aspects of this film because this film is, I mean, like, I do not mean this as any kind of pejorative, but this film is incredibly slow. Like, yeah, th- yeah, this yeah. is a glacial pace of a movie, but it's worth it. And I, I think that for this to be released, what, like a year ago? Like, that is shocking. This is not the pace of contemporary, the pace of contemporary cinema is blazing. Um, to, to reflect to reflect kind of like this broader capitalistic pace. It's just so fast. And this movie is a challenge to kind of not just how we perceive time in cinema, but also how we perceive time more broadly. You know, the fact that this feels longer than a Marvel movie, which is literally longer, is is incredibly interesting. Yeah, I think interesting things happen when you start thinking about time and start thinking about like how films use and 
portray time. It's like when people go, oh, this film's a bit too long. And I'm sort of like, well, the editors and director didn't make mis- didn't make a mistake. <laughs> like <laughs> they, they kind of, you know, they knew what they, this was, this was done deliberately. And you can say that I don't think it achieved what it tried to do in its length. Mm-hmm. But I also think, again, it's it's a mistake to be like, oh, this film's too long without going, actually, that's probably a reflection on my own subjective response to the art and is not an objective condition of the art itself. Absolutely. And I, I also think that too long, it, it needs, like like that as a statement in and of itself does not mean anything. You know, like a 10 minute movie can be too long if those 10 minutes are poorly spent, you know, like that 10 minutes needs or that that comment that, oh, that was too long. OK, why that that needs that yeah. needs to then hook in to some discussion of the use of time in the movie and the movie's use of the audience's time. Otherwise, it's just banal commentary. It's it's nothing better than like a five minute YouTube video that was like, I liked it. Bye. Eight out of ten. <laughs> yeah, I, I give I give this eight out of ten uh, animated maggot pig Funko Pops. <laughs> At least we don't live in the timeline that has Charlie Kaufman Funko Pops. Oh, thank goodness. So there was one line in, in this. There, there, I mean, like one line. There were many lines in this movie that kind of stuck in my head, and I, I think. It's hard to do this episode because I'm still chewing on so much of what this movie put forward. You, you know, like I, I, yeah. I have yet to yeah, grapple yeah. with the presence of Oklahoma that there's so much, so much going on here. But the one line I'm thinking of is, so this is a line from Young Woman and her, her character's name is Young Woman because her name changes, I think, at least three times throughout the movie. Um, but when they're, when they're in the car ride to Jake's parents' house, she says... Even fake, crappy movie ideas want to live. They grow in your brain, and that's what makes them dangerous. And that one, yeah. that that one, just like that, absolutely, like that that was it was like an act of sabotage on my brain. Like that threw a wrench right into the gears, and now I'm like, I think there, there's so much to, to un, un, unpack with that statement because where my mind first goes is like. Marvel movies, even fake crappy movie ideas want to live. And that's what makes them dangerous. They grow in your brain, right? This kind of like ultra capitalistic, unquestioning, propagandistic pieces of cinema that that because of their near total absence of engagement with any kind of political sense, they become just these these propaganda objects for hegemonic force. But then like it it gets like so much deeper because like. What, what, what is a fake movie? What is a crappy movie? Like, do movie ideas metastasize outside of the film? Like, that that line is just like, I'm still spiraling from that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I think a lot of it, a lot of this is kind of tied up in the idea about, like, originality. And, like, you know, ideas as having a kind of material force uh, and the, 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 the monad subject kind of moving through the world but rather like in a way the whole point of this film is like the singular unitary subject is a complete myth right Mm -hmm. and even 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 maybe up to the point of like coherent self-identity is is a complete construction something that's just been 
accreted, something that has been like accumulated. You know, we we are the sum total of various accumulations of discourse, and some of that includes, you know, uh, a, a DoD propaganda produced by Disney to make uh, <laughs> to make fourteen year olds think that fighter pilot girl bosses can save the world, like. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I I think you're right. It's it's one of these things where you kind of suddenly have to sort of self self reflect on your own investment and attitude towards a lot of art, and having that more critical uh, idea is 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 not in and of itself a bad thing. Absolutely, I I couldn't agree more. Well, uh, speaking of the constituent parts of my identity that come from external sources, I would like to thank all of our Patreon supporters for making the show possible. Um, if you would like to further invest in the construction of a communal identity that then becomes the self, you can support the show on Patreon for less than the cost of a cup of said identity. <laughs> <laughs> that's, maybe our be- that's maybe our best one so far. <laughs> no, that one's a keeper. Um, but okay, this moves us on to I'm thinking of discourse. Indeed it does. Let's, let's do it. So, I mean, like, let's, let's do the biggest one first. Let's talk about time and how spooky time is. Yeah. What, what do you think about this? This is a film that very deliberately has non-linear, non-linear, uh, or non-chronological time whilst remaining... Uh, this film moves in time, but it doesn't necessarily move all that much in space. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so w- w- what what do you think about what this film is doing? I mean, we, we touched on this a little bit when we were, in the, when we were still in the formalism zone, but the, the pace of this movie, right? The fact that we spend so much time in, in just kind of cars... You know, like, and cars are, especially in this American context, right? The car is still this legendary symbol of individual freedom. You know, like you, you get the car and now you're free. And and cars are fast and exciting, right? Like all, all car movies are about speed and, and intensity at their core, right? Like whether they're racing movies or heist films, like like like, you know, the car chase is not a car non-chase and like this extends to even depictions of the parked car right like mm. parking in a car is kind of like this penultimate teen exploitation movie moment and even though the vehicle itself is still it is still the site of great tumultuous movement and and i think like ejecting that ejecting the speed and intensity from the vehicle, regardless of its status of motion and peril, I think is one of the most brilliant turns of this film. I also think it's super interesting how time is experienced subjectively. So like different characters in this age and get younger in relation to others, but at different speeds. Mm-hmm. Uh, um which I think is re- it's really well done because a lot of it is hidden with like camera movements and cuts um, and um, the makeup and performances of David Thewlis and Tony Collette especially. Um, and it's this, this idea of like understanding time as not necessarily chronological destabilizes the continuity of subjectivity. So you end up realizing that, you know, 
what you take to be a to be the other is actually just the singular representation of the other at a given moment mm-hmm. and just when you try and kind of crystallize the other into a kind of solid uh coherent thing you have in some way kind of reduced them to something and and i i think that, that this film's playing around with time for for a very good reason which becomes clear by the end um because it's necessarily about jake trying to figure out uh in this kind of dream memory or fantasy where things might have been different um but what it does is it gives you this kind of kaleidoscopic impression of people rather than sort of like a portrait yeah i I think there's something really really gothic about this right because we're so used to the we we've structured time in society as as this linear extension of the factory mode of production you know our, our our days are still regimented by the conceptualization of factory time you know whether whether we're talking about uh classes in high school or we're talking about shifts at work it's it's factory time and and you know like it's a, it's a kind of we we just uh did a review of the book industrial gothic by Bridget M Marshall and I think like time is time is one of these unexplored gothic dimensions, right? Because we've we've turned time into this this fluid passage, this stream. We've almost dammed up this river, and now we're attempting to like uh, control time and segmentize this thing where it's like you can't cut a river in half; it's eternal and moving. And yet here we are trying to like make make what is fluid rigid. And I think part of the brilliance of I'm thinking of ending things is it returns this kind of fluidity to time. You know, like uh, all of this movie is happening in an instant, but it also takes place over a lifetime. And it's just, it's time doing what time is supposed to be doing and time rejecting this kind of uh, rigidity that we're trying to superimpose onto it. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really, really good way of putting it. So, uh, would you like to talk about trans narratives? Yeah, if we t- like, if, if we think that continuity through time is really how we understand people as maintaining a coherent identity, which philosophically has been a really long-standing kind of tradition, um, I think when you start kind of picking apart identity, uh, like this idea of like who you are is is not this kind of constant through time but can be malleable can be remade can become more sort of authentic that's a really interesting way of of thinking about this um so i was doing some kind of research on on this and found a brilliant essay by julia rhodes uh, over at crooked marquee uh talking about um the kind of trans themes in a lot of charlie kaufman's work um and there's just a little quote from this uh, essay that I, I kind of wanted to, to share, um, which is a really a super interesting way of reading this film in the context of what, we, what we've been talking about. Um, so maybe we can kind of talk about it, talk about this quote. So um, they say that Lucy is Jake's inner female self, whom he could never be in life. Jake's fantasy of bringing her home to his parents provides him with a safe and familiar social situation in which he can present to his parents the woman he desires to be, so she can gain their approval. 
The title, I'm thinking of ending things, can refer to both suicide and a breakup. For Lucy, it's both. Jake never allowed himself to be Lucy, and so for Lucy, Jake and his life are a prison to be escaped. Since Lucy could not be free in life, she now anticipates freedom in death. The film's core fantasy is one in which this violent separation from Jake's life is softened into a more palatable metaphor, that of a romantic breakup. Um, so Julia, uh, so Julia Rhodes kind of argues that I'm thinking of ending things is essentially a a uh, or can be read as a uh, what they call a cautionary tale of trans regret. And I wanted to I wanted to know what, what you kind of think about that. I mean, I think that's an incredibly powerful way of reading this movie, and I, and I think it, it entirely works in in the context of the film. And even even in like like the, the oh, so so much jumped to my mind while you were reading through that. I'm going to try and unpack it all in real time. Um, but one of the first things that jumped to my mind was the dance scene, and just mm-hmm. a, a real real quick shout out. I don't know if shout out's the right word here. Uh, Unity Felon, Frederick Woden, and Ryan Steele were the actors who portrayed our uh, three protagonists during the dance sequence, and I don't get like i can't dance in real life i've never been able to dance and i don't like i don't have like a i don't get it (laughs) um it is just beyond my beyond my ken but like i loved the dancing in this so much it was beautiful and evocative and it conveyed so much and and jake as the old janitor murdering himself as as youth is is just such a powerful symbol for this regret that we're talking about right that this this old man has to carry the fact that at, at this moment where he could have become the self he wanted to be he denied it and in doing so damned himself and, and that is just shaking and what you were talking it also got me like thinking about death kind of more broadly and like, uh, like over last summer, I was talking with a lot of friends about death and dying and mourning and kind of one of the things that emerged collectively from those conversations, shout out to Mexi from Vegan Vanguard for being part and parcel to these, um, is that like one, one of the reasons why death is so difficult to move through is because when we lose someone, what we really lose is just a significant part of ourself. And, and how we formalize and stabilize our own identity, right? Our identities are reflected off of the world around us and the people we interact with. And when those people leave, uh, we lose that ability, right? We lose this kind of like star by which we navigate the ship that is our life. And I think like that, that bit you were reading about trans narratives kind of really, really speaks to that, albeit a different manifestation of a kind of personal death. Um, yeah, it's it's a really, really good essay because it covers a lot of other um, uh, films that Kaufman was very involved in. So we'll see if we can we'll see if we can kind of link that in the show notes so people can uh, check it out. But I think this is this is the this is the big thing about this Um film the horror of it is the realization that you can't you can't go back that certain opportunities that certain certain moments certain um visions of who you wanted yourself to be are fleeting 
for me, the, the, that's one of the elements of this that gets closer to a more conventional appraisal of horror, right? The, the, the fact that these kind of substantive and concrete moments that wind up becoming our, our, our identity and how our identity solidifies are fleeting, right? Right. They're inherently ghostly and, and they move so quickly. Like we, we see this with the, the character known as mother, Jake's mom and, and her, her kind of struggle with, with a fatal illness and his father as his father kind of progresses through dementia and like, how how Jake's interacting with them is so cold and heartless in the only moment he could have interacted with them before, you know, their respective illnesses begin to like fundamentally reshape their their lives as both individuals and a family. Yeah, I it's I it's it's sort of emotionally dev- devastating, right, that this film basically unfolds for you the like the impossible, like cer- certain moments are are so kind of fleeting and fragile, and uh, open up within themselves a kind of host of infinite new possibilities, but the 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 window is very narrow, uh, and closes very quickly. And once it's closed, it's gone. Um. You know, no no matter how trivial any moment uh, uh, is like uh, Walter Benjamin talks about this in terms of like any moment being a kind of messianic one. And that's in the context of kind of revolutionary politics, but it's very true in a kind of personal level as well, which is like, uh, like there are, there are kind of uh, possibilities within the kind of minutiae of day-to-day existence that contain within them uh, infinite new, better futures that can be unfolded, but they unfold for a second and can and can and are lost. Um, and so the whole point of this film, really, in, in one way of looking at it, is like dealing with the horror of realizing how much you you personally might have lost. Like dealing with with reg- regret. And regret is a very, kind of very classically gothic emotion, right? Because it's all about the inability of the subject to reckon with our own histories. That is so incredibly goth. I love it. And I also think it is correct and very apt in the context of this film. Like there's a, there's a, there's, like you had a quote that, from the film that was like kicking around your head and this one also from the same character uh, sitting in mine, which is, she says, who might you have been? It's tragic how few people possess their souls before they die. Nothing is more rare in any man, says Emerson, than an act of his own. And it's quite true. Most people are other people. Their thoughts are someone else's opinions. Their lives are mimicry. Their passions are quotation. That's an Oscar Wilde quote. <laughs> <laughs> this movie did have a couple like really solid gags, and that was definitely one of them. So yeah, I I, th- I sort of think that like that there's so much in this film about about the kind of existential problem. Um, I think I think reading it in terms of of uh, a, a trans narrative is super compelling, um, and I think it is it can be read 
there, there is a kind of universalism to that where it's it's about the sort of existential problem of being in the world of trying to uh come to terms with like what what heideggerians would call hu- hu- human or uh human authentic being with a capital b uh and what happens if you realize that maybe uh things have slipped away from you things things that you wanted things that you uh wanted to kind of uh do in the world what do you think i mean i think that this is the the most like haunting and driving part of this entire movie and it's alive in like every every single beat in this movie is about a choice that was not taken um, through, from from the very beginning towards the very end, the, this entire movie is alive with these kind of dead moments, and mm-hmm. and one of the most chilling aspects about that is that is literally the course of our lives. We are defined as much by the choices we take as the choices we do not take, and we have to likewise live with both of them. You know, and and the horrifying weight that they each represent, and I guess also the elating happy moments that they each represent. But that's really not the brand here, is it? <laughs> no, no, not not really, not really. Uh, so, shall we move on to? Oh, social anxiety. Oh, I'm gonna skip that. Yeah, I I think like we can talk about that in a kind of like we can talk about this film in sort of like in the context of its ending, but like. I don't know what you thought, but wasn't wasn't just like the dinner scenes the most accurate depiction of social anxiety that I've seen in such a long time? Oh man, the- I I was having contact social anxiety watching watching young woman try to power her way through the awkward first dinner with the family of the guy you're planning on breaking up with, and it was. Oh, my skin was crawling. Oh, it's 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 almost painful, right? And you see different kind of flavors of it as well. Mm-hmm. Tony Collette's character and her really obviously kind of troubled and strained relationship with the son, um, and her kind of like desperate, forced joviality to try and cover everything. It's so. It's so. Oh, it's it's just so like deeply uncomfortable. So, so t- Tony Collette plays mother, and you know, okay. So this is uh, horror vanguard lore sidebar. If Darren Aronofsky is our sworn uh, nemesis for the creation of a film called Mother, is then Charlie Kaufman kind of like the inverse of this? Is is is, is this the anti-mother of cinema? There, there's a question for the audience to struggle with for the rest of forever. I. I mean, Charlie Kaufman seems to understand philosophy and doesn't want to torture his actors. So, uh, yeah, why not? <laughs> oh my God! Sorry, that was that got me. <laughs> Shots fired. Um, no, but so mother, uh, mother for me is is just watching her character is just so painful. A lot, a lot of times, movie characters feel like movie characters. Uh, because like part of, part of being a movie character is you can't be a complete realized individual because I only get to see you for like uh, somewhere between 75 minutes and two and a half hours. And nobody gets to be a complete individual if all of they've got if all they have is that little amount of time. 
um, which I think ties into a much larger conversation about what is it like to realize our individuality when capitalism steals so much of our time. But I yeah, think precisely. for me, like mother almost like defied that as, as a character, like there was something just so heartbreakingly raw and, and real. And I don't know if it was Tony Collette's performance or the writing or how the other characters played off of it, but that kind of like, she is so desperate for love in this family and, and to, to keep the bond alive and like her son, her son, I mean like Jake has clearly gone through this kind of like, he's stubborn and kind of an asshole and he is very much as a character, a little pretentious um, to tie us back into that earlier conversation. Cause he keeps correcting her about pronunciations to the point of like yelling and he's, you know, it's walking this kind of abusive line and like just the way that mother suffers through that and, and tries against the odds to make things better is just, it's like devastating to just try and remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you want to, if you want, if you want to, if you want a film that's going to give you sort of existential dread on an individual and social level. Boy, have we got a movie for you. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, you, you know how it goes with us. We're either going to give you like, I, I don't know, a movie about a roller skate superstar who has to fight their way through being possessed by a demon and an evil space queen. Or <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. we're going here. But I think, I think this uh, gets us well on to, to our next point and I, I have a quote to lead into that relative to what we've been talking about if you don't mind so this comes from a book called art of darkness a poetics of the gothic from the university of chicago press uh and it goes a little something like this but this circularity this short circuiting this teasing almost uncanny affinity between freud and gothic suggests that perhaps we have it backwards Instead of using Freud to read Gothic, we should use the Gothic to read Freud. And I think that, so this, this I think tethers into the conversation nicely, right? Because we're talking about a young man who's now an adult who is interacting with parts of his internal identity represented by his rapidly aging and decaying parents, mm-hmm. which I, Freud couldn't have even written something more Freudian than that. But it also speaks to yeah. to kind of the poetics of this. And I know we wanted to talk about poetry, which is something that the film is actively engaged with. Yeah. I mean, what, what did you think about how this film uses poetry and how do we kind of like link that back to the quote? So one thing that I find to be really interesting about poetry as, as a form is that it, it, it hasn't as directly been linked into a lot of the capitalist machinery that the novel has or the short story, you know, like uh, today, a successful novel means you have a chain of novels and you have a movie deal and a chain of movie deals. And if you're really lucky, you've got theme parks all over the world, you know, like uh, untold capitalistic success lies within the seed of a good YA novel about a boy wizard um, but poetry, poetry doesn't have that same kind of capitalist metastasizing, you know, there, 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 there is no, uh, Walt Whitman, Disney resort and casino <laughs> like that experience. It just, it just hasn't happened that way for us. 
And I, I think part of that too is like poetry is deeply concerned with time and rhythm and pacing. I mean, this links directly back to the quote that I read earlier, you know, um, this idea that like most people are other people, you know, mm -hmm. this, and I think uh, none of us are original. I think far too much is placed on, far too much weight is placed on the importance of being, you know, original or wh whatever that might yeah. mean. Um, but I also think it's super interesting that the texts that get, that, that um, are chosen for this film. So like Eva HD, Wordsworth, uh, Guy Debord gets mentioned. Um, oh, yes. Oh, we can't, we couldn't go without mentioning that. Yeah, what what did you think of of them dropping the society of the spectacle? I mean, like the the first thing I did was like, okay, they're doing psychogeography, but for memory, right? They're they're retracing the routes and steps and paths of memory, but actively challenging what their kind of uh, the the construct that is their memory actually means and how it affects them psychologically. It's it's trans it's translating memory into architecture and geographic space. Right. It's, it's treating memory as an act of city planning. And I was like, oh, ooh. once once the Gita board dropped in the chat, I was like, OK, I'm all in now. <laughs> you've, you've got me, uh, Mr. Kaufman. <laughs> but but again, it's sort of it's sort of reiterating the same problem. You know, it's quoting the board's society, the spectacle, this uh, as Jake puts it, look, look at the world through this piece of mm -hmm. glass that has been pre-arranged, pre-interpreted for you. I, again, it's this problem of like originality, of like uniqueness, of kind of solving that existential and, and subjective problem. Um, and, and recognizing actually that, that maybe we can't. Yeah, I mean like, well, originality is a trap. You, you know, like like originality disassembles eternally and you can never actually achieve the thing that it's supposedly after, right? Because even if you were to create a, a wholly original text that contains within itself no references to any previous existing text, something the, the like the which that anyone alive or who has lived had ever had known, um, which is impossible for the record, you would still have not invented the language used to communicate with it. And even if you did go that far, well, you still haven't invented the concept of language, right? Like, you you can't escape. And like, these are crass examples for a reason, because they need to be. Um, because any any granular detail, it's obvious that it's not original. You know, if we start talking about plot structures, it's like, okay, well, these all tie back into like long-standing plot traditions that are hundreds of years old now. And I think this this quest for originality feeds into a, a neoliberal capitalistic appraisal of what the self even is. Mm, yeah. You know, the, the, it's, yeah. If this the self needs to be authentic because if you if you try to be authentic, you constantly have to accrete new objects, like some kind of weird crab always sticking things to your shell. <laughs> That's a great way of putting it. That's a great way of putting it. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, I'll call that the crustacean. We'll go. For, we'll go for that for now. <laughs> but it, but I think that like when a more honest appraisal of what we are as just a being in the universe is we're like a a loosely assembled collective, 
you know like we we make our identities with each other we we co-construct what we are as individuals that have uh you know separate perceptions of ourselves and the world around us in society right like it's co-constructed yeah and it's precisely it's precisely because of that so- sociality that i think it's super important that like in in lots of ways this is a film about lonely loneliness mm-hmm. Um, and the removal of the social. Um, and it made me think of um, Sartre's famous quote from No Exit, you know, hell is other people. And I was like, really? Hell is other people. But like this film is like, actually, no, hell is, hell is no people. Hell is being stuck within yourself uh, for, forever. Absolutely. Like, like this movie, it, it reminds me a lot of other films we've done in the past that are just kind of explorations and visions of hell and, and what it means uh, to, to suffer. And, and hell is even like a more complicated subject, too, because like what, what, what does it mean to deserve suffering? What, what does it mean to live your life in such a way that you earn torment? Because that that is yeah, what I mean, I mean, goes through. I, yeah, that's true, but I don't think it's about deserving. Because mm-hmm. I think, I think, given everything that you said about kind of like the social aspect yes. to, to identity, it, in a way, like you can you can kind of like choose to put yourself in hell. Oh, one one hundred percent. Yeah. Like, like this is the thing. It's like that moment where he sees he sees the girl at the bar, or he sees the girl at the trivia night at the bar. Uh, the young woman and there's it's like he can't even bring himself to to talk to her um and it's like that choice then then kind of makes it easier and more more kind of like it draws him into a string of other choices about kind of withdrawing like that's what his that's what um mother says right uh i'm gonna i'm gonna look it up the quote exactly uh Jake can be controlling. You don't. You can't allow him to control you. Mm-hmm. Needs to, there are so there are so many many things that make him nervous, and he keeps closing off more and more of the world. Like and those those choices become easier and easier to make the more that you make them. And it's like if if hell is truly being being stuck within yourself uh, forever, in a, in a way, uh, like Terry Eagleton has a really good bit on this talking about. Um, uh, talking about evil, um, and he um, he talks about William uh, William Golding's novel Pincher Martin, and he says that actually, um, if you evil is this kind of like self contained being uh, being completely unable to sort of give yourself over to uh, to anything else, you know it's it's about holding on to what you have so intently that everything else gets shut out. Um, and he talks about this in the context of Pincher Martin because Pincher Martin is about a character that basically refuses to die and it ends up with his character being essentially trapped in a figurative hell. You know, if you, um, and he, Eagleton makes the point that if you're a martyr, uh, you know, uh, religious martyrs tend to give up their life really easily. They give it away. That's the whole point. They sacrifice everything for this kind of potential, a kind of ultimate act. But then, you know, Jake. Jake is this person who's kind of cut, deliberately kind of cut themselves away from everything else. 
the kind of social aspect of being human. It's like if hell is if hell is not other people, hell is also being trapped within yourself forever. And and thinking that that's the kind of right choice at the moment, in the moment rather. That is a phenomenally well constructed point. Just thank you for saying that. <laughs> you know, it's like there's there's something so sad about about this this is what this is what i find so kind of emotionally affecting which is like regret regret is is so powerful because there's almost nothing that can be done about it you have to kind of reckon with it um and i think you know that's what the voice says to the elderly janitor right at the end right it's not so bad you make lemonade you make the most of it um and even though they talk about that earlier in the film and dismiss it as all platitudes, you know, it's like, if, if you don't, if you don't, you end up in, in a kind of like figurative hell where you end up, you end up sort of completely cutting out more and more of the external world and sort of sealing yourself up, uh, you know, like a Edgar, like a, like a, like an Edgar Allan Poe short story within your own consciousness. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. I mean like this, this is like an internalized cask of Amontillado. Um, yeah, and I think that's what makes it so kind of um, effective uh, for me. Sorry, that was a lot of words. No, <laughs> that was, I mean, like those words were well, I mean, like to, to tie us back to the very start of the episode, that was an excellent use of time. Um, how about, let's, let's kind of sum this up then. Any, any sort of final thoughts? Um, I, I would say... 100% see this movie, but see this movie knowing that it's two hours that will ultimately go on for days after that. This is this is a movie that needs to be like not grappled with, not not something that crass, but it's it's a movie that will take up space within you. Yeah. There's there's a there's a really good quote from this film that I've been thinking about a lot where character says that other animals can live in the present you humans cannot so they invented hope um and the opposite of uh hope is memory um hope and fear are both anticipatory consciousness directed towards the future um and yes i i, I agree with the quote but like the opposite of hope is not fear the opposite of hope is is memory mm -hmm. And like this, this film is very much all about, you know, at the end of things, when things are kind of clarified for you right before you die, uh, when all you have left is the ability to look back, will you be looking back and seeing it as something kind of comforting or will it be something kind of terrifying and, and, and horrifying when you realize how much uh, passed you by? Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky. <laughs>